so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Research Institute at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as a research fellow in Christian ethics. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Joshua Shatrow to talk about his new book, The Augustan Way, Retrieving a Vision for the Church's Apologetic Witness from Baker Academic. Today, we discuss how to cultivate a more effective witness and robust apologetic in our post-Christian age. Josh currently serves as the Billy Graham Chair of Evangelism and Cultural Engagement at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama, and he previously served as the Executive Director of the Center for Public Christianity in Raleigh, North Carolina. He's an award-winning author of numerous books in the fields of evangelism and apologetics, including Tell a Better Story, How to Talk About God in a Skeptical Age, which won the 2021 Christianity Today Book Award. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Josh, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story, your new role there at Beeson Divinity School, and a lot of the work that you've been doing for a number of years through the Center for Public Christianity. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the last five years I've been uh, here in, I've been in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, working for an organization called the Center for Public Christianity. We kind of the flagship of what we did and the center is still doing is running a fellows program for emerging leaders in the Raleigh-Durham area. And so we take 20 to 30 emerging leaders in different vocations, and we take them through kind of a church-based theological boot camp for nine months. And But it's not just theology. It's really kind of the emergence of spiritual life with theology in a community that's looking at the city and saying, not only how do we speak the gospel into a post-Christian society, but how do we live that out? And um I served there for five years, and recently I was appointed to the uh, Billy Graham Chair at Beeson Divinity School and looking forward to starting this fall teaching courses in evangelism and apologetics, cultural engagement, things that I, I like to talk about. Well, you're one of my favorite people for a number of reasons. One, that you really dig deep on this cultural kind of cultural engagement apologetics front. 
but then you also do so in a really approachable way. And that was one of the reasons I was really excited to have you here on the podcast is because of the way you go about your writing, the way you go about communicating, which I think is incredibly important today, especially as we talk about character and integrity, um, but also the thoughtfulness and the depth uh, that is needed for a lot of pressing questions and ideas that we have kind of floating around in society today. One of the things that I do love about this podcast is being able to talk to authors, not only about their books, which we'll do, but also a little bit about their writing process and how they think through it. You are a well-published author. You have a number of works. Um, Even with this book, you've had a couple books come out really, really close to one another, um, many of which you've actually co-written. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your kind of writing process, um, how you kind of navigate and think through those things with editing, but then also having a co-author. Because a lot of times I know some folks that listen to the podcast are aspiring authors or those who are are already writing, just to hear from fellow authors about kind of their process and how they think through those things. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple ways to do co-authors, co-authorship. I'll I'll just talk about that starting off because that's unique. And I... There's one way which I haven't taken, which is, hey, you take two authors, one author writes one part of the book, the other author writes uh, the second half of the book. That can work. I have, I know people who do that. That is not the options I've, I've taken with any, with, with really my books because I've really, the book becomes this kind of extension of a friendship for, for most of my co-authors books. And so it's this friend who uh, we are growing together in Christ and we're also growing together intellectually. We're thinking through an issue together. It's actually not the most efficient way to do this. So if you're thinking, I think the other way is super efficient. Probably, you know, I would guess that, Hey, I'm only going to do half, half the work and this other person is going to do the other half. But what, what I've done is more of an immersive experience where we're actually kind of, working together at times you, you want to kill the other person and at the, t- the other person wants to kill you. But for us and for, for my co-authorships, it's been really generative uh, as far as ideas and then challenging one another as, as we work through that. Now that some people uh, just couldn't do this. It, it demands a certain type of relationship, a type of friendship. I, I, I joke either by the end of this, we're going to, become closer or we're going to hate each other. And fortunately, through all the, the projects I've done, we've become closer friends, even as we've had to work through disagreements. Uh, so for us, that, that's that been a healthy thing. I've also, I just completed a, a book called Surprised by Doubt with a former student of mine, but he's really a friend now and he's finished up his PhD. And so that was just a lot of fun to have, have somebody who you've taught and now they've matured theologically and into and in life and then to kind of go along for a year and write something together. So it's been a, f- a form of discipleship as well. Sometimes people discipling me and at the same time, the opportunity to disciple other people through the process. So it's, it's been a healthy thing for me, but I, it's one of those things that I wouldn't always recommend that because there are some challenges that come with it. Yeah, so obviously this book, The Augustan Way, Retrieving a Vision for the Church's Apologetic Witness, you wrote with Mark Allen. Tell us a little bit about this kind of background behind this book. If it's a product of kind of friendship and co-laboring on some of these ideas, what kind of prompted you all to write this book and why now? Yeah, so uh, if we published in, Mark and I published our first book together in 2018. It's a, it's a textbook. We were both teaching at Liberty University together and it's called Apologetics of the Cross. And at the time, I had written some in apologetics, but not 
more generally in methodology and in training. And so I came to this idea because I was I was teaching a course for the first time and I couldn't quite find the textbook that fit. I was going to be training um, pastors and ministry leaders, missionaries. And when I went to pull and look at the different apologetic textbooks, many of them had just tons of good content, but there, I felt like there was a kind of, how do I put this <laughs> to not offend half the listeners here? Well, it, they were written by analytical philosophers, <laughs> or maybe maybe offend you. I'm not sure, <laughs> but and analytical philosophers are wonderful, are wonderful, and I read them and I learn so much. And yet, there is a disconnect between that kind of cultural context that you do analytical philosophy in and the local church many times, or the missionary, the mission field, and even Alvin Plantinga, for instance, one of the greatest analytical philosophers, I think of our lifetime would say this, has said such things. And so what I was trying to do and what Mark came along to do with me was to say, how do we write a textbook that takes all that really great content, but also brings in other disciplines and then serves it up so we can better train ministers and missionaries and how to apply that into their context. So again, hear me affirming what those philosophers are doing, but we needed to do it in a way that, somebody who wasn't going to take two or three years of philosophy could bring this into the pulpit, bring this into the kind of street level and not be glib, which was a huge undertaking. So we wrote that book, finished it in 2018. And as we're writing it, we're realizing we kind of had these intuitions that Augustine actually had more for us. We found that actually in methodological discussions, people weren't actually going to Augustine for apologetics political theology, uh, for maybe theology in general, maybe even philosophy. But when it came to apologetics, the the methodological discussions that we're having, they weren't going to Augustine. And here's the thing about Augustine. He was a pastor before he was anything else. And so we had these intuitions. And then as we went into his works, we found, oh, goodness, there's certain things we can draw that are parallel or analogous, at least from his context to ours. And certain things we can learn that we feel like, even though Augustine's this fountainhead of the Western tradition, we feel like he's been applied in different settings, but not so much with apologetic methodology. And so that's what we were trying to do with this book. So one of the things I'd want folks to hear is that we're actually coming at this as kind of pastor theologians and then looking to an ancient pastor theologian for help. In really practical questions, um, not feeling like we need to come up with uh, apologetics from scratch, but also recognizing that we have new challenges. Now, what resources within the tradition can we draw upon? And, you know, one of the greats would be Augustine, and that's what we're trying to do in the book. Yeah, there's obviously so much to unpack there, and I want to kind of dive into a number of those themes that you kind of raise, even in that conversation there, but uh, throughout the book as well. I think for, and one of the things I'll just say kind of to encourage you, I think that you all did that. Um, you did, you really accomplished the goal of the depth, but also that approachability and kind of that pastor, theologian, apologist kind of mentality, kind of that triad that you kind of lay out even with Augustine, that that's really who he was, and that's who you all are. And I really think you accomplished that through the work, because 
there's a, a level of depth and nuance, but there's also an approachability that you don't see all often um, in a lot of academic works. Uh, not, you know, not so much uh, speaking to the kind of analytic philosophy kind of debate, but more so just in terms of academic books in general, that it's very, very approachable. I think this is something you could obviously hand to kind of a, a lay leader in your church that's wanting to go a little bit deeper. And so I commend that. I think for some, when they hear Augustine, they immediately conjure certain images. Maybe they think of City of God. Maybe they think of political theology, like you mentioned. Or maybe they think of confessions. Or maybe they think of his voluminous letters and sermons and all these different things. But some are just quite intimidated by him. They know a lot about him, but they haven't actually read him. You mentioned that he's not often kind of in the conversation surrounding apologetics. So I want you to unpack that a little bit. Why do you think that's the case that he's more seen as kind of a political or a public theologian, kind of political theology? There's a little bit of theology mixed in. There's some of this kind of discipleship type of thing or conversion, this grand conversion that he has. Why is it that he doesn't, he hasn't at least been seen as a great apologist, especially of his time? Well, I think people recognize that he was doing apologetic work. I, I, but I think one of the things that's going on, though, is I, I, I'll give you one example here to help illustrate, I think, why this is. I, there was an article written on Augustine, the apologist, and when it many helpful things, but very little on confessions and city of God. In other words, they are, they are, they are mentioned and even mentioned as, in some sense, apologetic works. But when when the author was really trying to bring out the apologetic works, it was it was like they were trying to fit in into Augustine into their into their categories of what is apologetics, which worked on maybe like syllogistic reasoning or kind of the more analytical approaches. And of course, confessions is a story shaped prayer. And so but he, he tells us he's writing confessions in order so that people would love God more or city of God is one big sweeping story. Now, if you start trying to just pull out kind of where are all the, you know, syllogistic arguments, well, you're going to, you're going to have a tough time with that. The, the, the other, so I think on one hand, maybe what our imagination is, what is apologetics, Augustine might not fit that. I think the other thing to think about is that Augustine was writing right before the advent of Christendom. And so reception history of Augustine is going to naturally look to him for theology and look to him for political theology about how to order life. But because he is dealing with paganism and pluralism that wasn't felt in the same way, like you know, Aquinas and others are writing, they're looking to Augustine or the reformers, they're looking to Augustine for some other things. And so I don't think it's an accident that now we're in a more pluralistic society, people are starting to turn to Augustine and say, oh goodness, he was in a, he was filling the cross pressures of a pluralistic pagan society. So when you go to confessions, he's actually telling the story of, of how he's, he's trying on these different world and life views, <laughs> what that felt like, how they didn't work for him. And, and so that's not going to be received and heard in the same way if you're within Christendom. It becomes, okay, Augustine's doing this thing here, but you can't feel that as much as I think we feel that today. I think the other thing is people who are theologians 
Um, there's a movement where you have theologians and even some philosophers, they just don't want to do anything with apologetics <laughs> for various reasons. Maybe it doesn't feel a scholarly. So in, in certain circles, you know, if you love Augustine, you don't really like apologetics because you're, you're a historian or you're a theologian and that's not your thing. So I think for all of those reasons, those are at least three things off the top of my head of probably why he hasn't been incorporated as much. Yeah, it's one of those things. I love kind of the method conversation. That's something I liked about this book is kind of getting into the method. Because as an ethicist, it's really interesting to see what ethics is to different people. So when I'll talk about ethics, I often say, oh, it's just applied theology. And that's what my theologian friends will say. Or my philosopher friend, no, it's really our, it's philosophical ethics. And that's what really you're doing. And it's just fascinating to me kind of the way we structure and the way we think about those things. And even kind of what the the field of apologetics even is, people have different kind of preconceived notions of what it is, its value, its usefulness, et cetera. And so while we don't have really time in the podcast to dive into method per se, that's where my mind naturally goes, kind of how we frame up a lot of those things. One word that keeps coming up in conversations, especially now, is this idea of retrieval. I mean, you guys have it right in the subtitle of retrieving a vision for the church's apologetic witness, going back and retrieving this kind of Augustine way and kind of applying that to contemporary issues. We talk a lot, especially in Protestant circles, of theological retrieval or philosophical retrieval. I wanted to see if you could unpack what is retrieval in that sense and why is it so important, especially as you look at Augustine? You've kind of hinted that with some of the, to date, with kind of the challenges we face today in a more pluralistic society. But why is Augustine such a helpful tool or his writing such a helpful tool for us as we think through a lot of the contemporary challenges of our day? So uh, maybe one way to get at retrieval the way that Mark and I view it is to contrast it with represtination. Represtination would be say, this is what Augustine did. And we take his arguments and we just kind of plop them into any point in history. Those are the universal arguments. That's going to do the persuasion. You take your favorite, you know, theologian philosopher and you just, there's his argument here. We're going to do it today. He got it right. Just do exactly what he did. And I think especially, and we could talk about this in different disciplines, but especially in apologetics and areas of persuasion, I think that is deeply problematic <laughs> because we are historical creatures. We are, uh, as human beings, we are in a, a space that we live out certain out of a certain context and we're going to find, we're going to have different assumptions. We're going to have different plausibility structures and so we're going to have to interact differently depending on to persuade people at different times and at different places. This is like, you know, missiology 101, right? I mean, so, uh, you know, missionaries go and think, how do we actually persuade? How do we explain the gospel in this country, in this foreign land? Well, and so with persuasion, with apologetics, we need to be asking those questions and we can't simply say we're just going to do exactly what Aquinas did or Augustine did. On the other hand, as we're doing that, as we're contextualizing our arguments, as we're seeking to persuade, we shouldn't simply say well, we're the first ones to ever try to persuade. We're the first persons to ever do this. And so we need to learn from the past. And so a retrieval is to say, hey, we want to be we want to learn from how the spirit has worked in for the last 2000 years but then we have to bring that to bear today. Um, and that's the task of an apologist, as I would say, a preacher, of a counselor, anyone who's 
who, who is persuading people of the truth of the gospel, persuading people to believe the gospel. Now, having said that, uh, why Augustine? Why is Augustine particularly relevant? Well, I, I've gestured to some of this already, which is that he's really at the beginning, he's right before Christendom. So obviously you have Constantine at the beginning of the fourth century, converts to Christianity, Christianity begins to get this cultural power, but it's still late antiquity. It's not the kind of world that we'll, we'll see with the Reformation or the medieval theologians. This is a world that we still feel the cross pressures of doubt and other options. Augustine is narrating that in Confessions and in the City of God. And so he actually grows up in the church. And uh, in some sense, he's he grows up with his mom, Monica, bringing him to church, but his dad's a pagan. So right away, his dad converts late in life, but right away, even in his home, he feels this cross pressure. And then he's he grows up in the education system, the Roman education system, which is all about glory and fame. And he he inhabits that world and actually, you know, it's all about career for him. Right away, even as I'm telling Augustine's story, if you're paying attention, you should be able to say, well, okay, that's what a lot of the people are feeling in my churches today, right? They have one parent who's a Christian, one who's not. <laughs> they have parents who are telling them, even if they're Christians, they're really telling them under the table, your identity is if you make it in life, and if you make it in life are these occupations. And so even if you just, this is why confessions, I think, is so powerful and because it, it resonates, particularly today in this kind of quest for identity, where we feel fragilized and we feel the kind of existential weight of having to create our own identity. Well, Augustine narrates that in Confessions. Um, he narrates the cross pressures. And, and then he narrates how he actually tried on these different world and life views. And you just don't get the same type of thing when you kind of jump up into the middle of Christendom. So I think for those are just some of the reasons I think when we return to Augustine, we have some analogs for us today and we can see, okay, well, then how was he actually seeking to persuade his congregation, given his own story, given that, that there's analogies that we can make to, to our day, we find him particularly relevant uh, that we can draw upon what he's doing, even though the, the specific arguments might not be exactly the same. But the way that he's going about that, I think, is really helpful for us to learn from. Well, I want to dig in one of those uh, kind of themes that you see in Augustine. You guys uh, kind of talked about it. You've already alluded to it um, a good bit. I mean, kind of using Charles Taylor's language of a social imaginary, the way we imagine kind of our society and the way we function in the world today. You've already mentioned kind of world and life view, worldview. There's a lot of baggage that comes with these terms, um, but also a lot of usefulness. And that's something, another conversation for another day on what's the best terminology. But it is really interesting, and Taylor notes this, that kind of writ large throughout much of Western culture is the search for identity, the search for self-expression, uh, that we see kind of this expressive individualism of our day. And I think many of us, whether you kind of steeped in Taylor or not, kind of see that and recognize that and even may be very familiar with that language. What's fascinating to me, kind of, and I've always thought about this, and I wanted to have you on the podcast to be able to answer, uh, ask a question like this, is one who's steeped in Augustine, you have his confessions, but then you also have this kind of parallel confessions with Jean-Jacques Rousseau 
that's a very different type of confession. It's a very different type of identity and um, who we are as individuals. So can you help us to understand kind of Augustine's notion of identity and what it means to be an individual in Augustine's framework compared to kind of a lot of the modern assumptions of what it means to be a person or what it means to have our identity? What is our identity? What's the difference there? And how does Augustine kind of help reframe a lot of the contemporary longings that we have today? I think that there's a way that Christians often interact with what's called by Robert Bella expressive individualism. And expressive individualism is this notion that you look inside yourself to find the true you against society, against what anybody else says, in rebellion to any standards or norms. It's just the spark that's you. And then no one can kind of challenge that. You just find that and you live it out. And that's what Robert Beller calls expressive individualism. And there's this, as Christians, we should find that deeply problematic. <laughs> um, and Augustine would challenge that, and, and we should as well. There, there is a way, though, that Christians have simply challenged that in a way that says, well, that's just completely wrong. But, but I want to suggest that given that kind of people's plausibility structure today, and that they are seeking some kind of identity, instead of us simply saying, and this is a very Augustinian move, rather than us simply saying, hey, don't worry about identity or don't seek out identity, I think uh, the way to say it is you're seeking it out in the wrong place. That's not going to work. Because ultimately, when you're seeking identity, you're seeking something to worship, and you're, you're in essence worshiping yourself there's lots of problems with worship, worshiping yourself. Can you really trust yourself? <laughs> Do you really have that much confidence in yourself? The problem also is that it, it it's not because we're social beings, even the way we determine kind of, well, what is the true self is by looking around outside of you to the norms of, of some tribe around you. Now, Augustine's going to say, hey, actually, when you look to self, you, if you're paying attention, you're going to actually see that you are dependent. You're a dependent creature. You're, yes, you're a creature made to worship. And if you try to worship yourself or worship anything else, you will be living, you know, later people might would call like a false consciousness. You would, you, you're, you're going to be living a life that isn't consistent with reality. And so you're going to kind of feel that shrapnel at different places at different times. You might call this the modern malaise. Uh, another author, Richard Beck, a friend of mine, calls this the ache we feel in late modernism. And so what we're suggesting in the book isn't simply to say to somebody who's searching for identity, who's searching for happiness, hey, stop those searches. <laughs> what we're saying is you're looking in the wrong places. And this is very Augustinian. Because it's, it's, in essence, tapping into us as worshiping beings and saying, yes, you're made to worship. Now let's see actually how it works out to worship anything else but God. And let's try Christianity on and a life that's lived in worship of the true and living God. And so our, our kind of, we said we weren't getting into methodology, but I am here. The methodology isn't, hey, let's let's subtract out and not do theology. It's really showing that everyone's doing theology. Everyone's worshiping. And so it becomes theology versus theology. And so it's bringing all our theology into this. 
rather than kind of a more minimalistic approach to engagement. But you have to do the work to help them see, hey, whether you believe in God or not, you are worshiping. Whether you believe in God or not, you're assigning meaning and value and and you're pulling your identity from something. So let's compare that with the Christian view and let's see how that works out. Yeah, I love that. And that's something that I, so I teach a worldview analysis class here at Boyce College. And one of the things I try to do is to say, to remind our students that everyone, regardless if they're a theist or not, has a theology and understanding of God. It may be a negative understanding or a positive understanding, a biblical understanding. There may, There is an understanding there. Everyone is doing theology in that sense. And everyone has a an anthropology and a metaphysic and an epistemology and an ethic. And that makes up our worldview or world and life view or whatever language you want to use on that. Um, but it is it is really fascinating and kind of unknowingly even being uh, influenced by Augustine and some of that to say every, you're doing this, but you're looking in the wrong places. And I've noticed that this conversation is really thrilling to me because part of my kind of ongoing, I have a writing project I'm working on right now diving into the idea of privacy and what do we mean by privacy, especially from a living in an increasingly digital age and technological society. What is privacy? Do we actually have a sense of privacy? And so often today, this sense of privacy is this kind of autonomous individual, um, especially kind of morally autonomous individual. And it's about this right of me getting to do whatever I want and express who I am. And so as I'm kind of rethinking this idea of privacy and kind of reframing it, what I think is hopefully a very biblical idea of privacy, there is this sense of an individual, but that individual is lived in relationship with other people, but also with God himself, who we obviously have no privacy with uh, because God knows us better than we know ourselves. And so even kind of tapping into Augustine's thought and kind of reframing that kind of longing for self-expression, that longing for identity that is a natural longing, but it's it's a longing that's kind of redirected in the wrong place. That's something that kind of I'm hoping to kind of dive into and dig into a little bit of saying, do we actually have a sense of privacy? Do we have privacy? And then if so, what is it? And then how do we start to think about that in an increasingly digital age where so much of our lives, uh, willingly or unwillingly, are being promoted and captured and data is being uh, stored on us in many ways. And how does that kind of contribute to power dynamics? And how does that think through the nature of society and government and industry? And what does the Christian life look like in an increasingly surveillance society? There's just so much to kind of unpack there. And that's one of the reasons I love a book like this, kind of introduces and helps us to think through a little of kind of the way Augustine navigated some of the similar, and I'm not saying there's a direct parallel here by any means, but some of that methodology I think can be very, very helpful, as you said, because we're facing similar kind of horizons here um, in many ways. And that kind of helps us to reframe some of that. Yeah. And I I would just, maybe a practical point on this, and I appreciate that, Jason, I just want the listeners to hear this, is that often when, when you're talking to people or you're preaching to somebody um, if you say, hey, you have this theology or you have this metaphysic or you have this philosophy, that's not going to hit very well with them because they're like, I don't even know what metaphysics means, right? And so, <laughs> so, so what actually happens is, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump for a second to uh, my, my Bavinkian friends here, but one of the things that I've, I've been reading, um, J.H. Bavink and his distinction he makes between worldviews and world visions and world visions as he's saying it's the kind of like 
not everyone has a fully formed out world vision and worldview, but everyone has kind of a world vision. And what he means by that is everyone kind of has these intuitions about the world, these kind of instincts. And that's, that's what I'm getting at when Augustine's saying, we all are worshipers. We're all going to live with meaning and value. And, and so what I actually do in conversation, so here's the practical part, is I, I, I don't go in and I don't ask somebody, what's your worldview? Because that's going to be weird. And they're going to say, many times they don't know, but I'm going to say, what do you really live for? What's really important to you? What do you really value? Tell me your story. And all of a sudden, that what could have seemed like a very abstract, depersonalized, even aggressive conversation comes into, hey, tell me about your life. Tell me what you what's really important. But what I'm getting at is are all those things we've mentioned. I'm listening for identity. I'm listening for what they're really uh, tapping meaning and significance out of. And then I can have a conversation. And this is what Augustine was great at is he, he's so nimble as a pastor He's writing in so many different contexts and he can communicate to different people depending on the genre, depending on who he's trying trying to reach. And so for my normal preaching conversations, I'm trying to actually speak in ways that people can understand, knowing that it's actually me coming alongside of them and helping them see, okay, yeah, okay, this is what I'm valuing. Oh, I am a worshiper. Oh, I am worshiping all these false titles. Oh my goodness. Um, why do I do that? And and kind of and so apologetic conversations aren't necessarily what we imagine as the spectacle of me versus them, but it's actually a lot of times me coming aside and asking questions and kind of scratching beneath the surface, not always in a challenging ways, although it's, at times I do have to challenge, but scratching the surface to say, hey, what's really going on? What do you really live for? I think a lot of our apologetic arguments, one of the problems is they don't have a lot of mass. I can give this abstract argument from design or something or from, uh, you know, cosmology. And for a lot of people, it just, they're going to go on and live their life, right? Like whatever, you know, haven't thought much about infinite regress, but I've got stuff to do this afternoon. But if I go in and start talking about meaning and death and tragedy and, the things that just fill our life, all of a sudden, people don't just walk away from that. There's a weight and a mass to those things because they're connected directly to what it means to be human in a fallen world. And so I want to learn how to preach and teach and evangelize around these things that have mass for the people I'm talking to, not maybe what I like to talk about or even the arguments that I maybe for you personally, oh, well, I love this particular argument. I'm more always listening and searching for what has mass to my audience, what's going to move them, what's going to open up some horizons. And so that's just a little bit more about methodology. And I think this is inspired by Augustine because he, we since he's doing this throughout his kind of canon of works. No, I think that's really helpful. And that's even one of the ways as I'm uh, kind of engaging with my students is reminding them, you know, asking people their stories, asking really good questions, and also realizing that there isn't maybe a developed framework. We often say that, you know, uh, I'll tell my students in class that, you know, your friends don't know, and you may not even know some of these terms. This is what's going on. This is kind of the way we can frame it up, but this isn't kind of your apologetical method here. And I'm really glad that you brought up J.H. Bavink. He's uh, someone that we have 
talked a lot about it here on the podcast. We just had Dan Strange on the podcast not too long ago um, with the new edition of uh, Church Between a Temple and a Mosque, uh, which is a really, really helpful kind of reprint that came out from Westminster Seminary Press not too long ago. Had Dan on talking a lot about that. And there's so much that can be and should be unpacked here. As we start to wrap up the conversation, ask you a question about this pastor-theologian model that we hear a lot about today. You all kind of take it a step further. You say a pastor-theologian-apologist. Um, we see that with Augustine, even kind of in hearing you, we also see that in your own life. How is that kind of helping to not only bring these ideas together in the academy, but I think much more importantly in the life and the ministry of the local church, which is God's plan A for the mission that we're called to do is to make disciples, not just sharing the gospel, but also seeing people deepen their faith and th- deepen their relationship with God. How does that idea of pastor, theologian, apologist kind of help to frame out uh, the fullness in some sense of the Christian life? Yeah, well, I, I think I've, I've been, I was served as a resident theologian the last five years here in Raleigh. And one of the things that was just very clear to me is it's it's not as if the people that I'm talking to in my congregation are somehow living in this kind of world apart from everybody else. I mean, they're watching the same Netflix films. <laughs> they're, they're, they're doing our lives. So even though we live in a pluralistic society, one of the striking things is, you know, atheists an atheist life and a Christian's life, as far as, you know, you know, they're watching the same kind of news channels and so much of the stuff is they're, they're feeling the same kind of pressures or they're hearing different types of arguments. And so when I, when I go to speak, two people in my congregation, they're dealing with unbelief. And so to identify that and put my finger on it and acknowledge that is part of my job as a pastor. It's part of my job when I'm counseling somebody. I mean, this is the work that we're called to do, I think, is to help people with unbelief. So I actually don't see there this this big divide where we used to think, okay, now I'm going to do the evangelistic part of my sermon. (laughs) It's all evangelistic because we all need the gospel, but we also need to kind of challenge the narratives of the day that we find ourselves absorbing. And then we need to challenge them with the gospel and Christians and non-Christians need those. What I have found helpful in the local church as far as training on this issue is one of the things I do as far as spiritual transformation is to actually let's name the narratives, the narrative of achievement, the narrative of romance, the the various different kind of narratives of maybe nihilism that we find ourselves in and how they're impacting us and name, name those false narratives, name the false gods in our lives and actually reflect on how those don't work, how they actually bring us despair, what the problems with those are, because we need that ourselves Uh, We need that as a community. But then once you do that kind of approach to spiritual transformation in your own life and in your life of your church, then not only as a pastor and as a leader, but your people will be already trained to go and do that with their friends to say, yes, I do. You see what's going on? Do you see where you're going for meaning and value and significance? And I'm telling you this not because I don't like you or that I'm standing above you in some way, I can show you my own scars because <laughs> I've tried those gods. They don't work out well. And so people actually are able to go because of the spiritual transformation process in the church and actually apply apologetics in an August, Augustinian vein within their own life. And they do it in a way with humility. 
as well. So I actually see these as going together in the local church and for pastors, for ministers, the kind of the option of just saying, well, apologetics is for those people there, over there, maybe uh, in seminary or for those people who like that stuff. I mean, the questions just keep coming at us. And if we're not, we can just say, well, just believe, but that's not going to cut it. And if we come into this without having thought about it, without having thought about methodology, then we're just kind of making it up as we go, right? So when somebody says, well, what about evil in the world? Or what about these views that I'm hearing about science? How does that fit with Christianity? So all of these things now are being taken to pastors, and we can't simply say, well, that's not my job. I just preach the gospel because they're tied into whether your people are really going to take the gospel seriously. And so what's unfortunate is sometimes curriculums haven't really emphasized apologetics because of certain uh, maybe problems with how apologetics was taught in the past. And I think we're starting to see a resurgence of the need for apologetics and also the resurgence of a need for a very kind of carefully thought out apologetics. But what I've seen on this is the theologians in their 40s and 50s and 60s and the pastors who are, didn't get that in their seminary education and having to go back and read more to try to help people. Well, kind of on that note, one of the things we always do as we end the podcast is talk about some other resources. Obviously, we want folks to go and grab a copy of the Augustine Way, Retrieving a Vision for the Church's Apologetic Witness that you and Mark Allen wrote. But I, I want to kind of key in on that idea. You talked about those stories or those narratives that we believe. What are some works or even resources that you feel like can be helpful for kind of diagnosing where we are and some of kind of these big themes or these big stories or these big longings even uh, that we see in our society? Are there any works or figures that you would recommend to listeners if they kind of want to dive into that and kind of shore up maybe some deficiencies in their own uh, their own apologetic? Yeah, I mean, Chris Watkin, his new book, Biblical Critical Theory, has received a lot of praise and it and well worth it. It's a, it's a big book, but there's a, a lot of affinities. He's also following City of God and Augustine in, in many ways in, in his approach. And Chris's book is just outstanding. It is, a, it is a thick read. I tried to write really before the Augustine Way, what I, I would say the Augustine Way is an academic prequel to a more popular book called Telling a Better Story. And that's a book I really wrote for lay people, pastors in the in the local church who are looking. Hey, I just want to go direct directly to it. <laughs> in some sense, that is an Augustinian retrieval, but Augustine's just here and there in the footnotes. But we had the the idea for the Augustine Way as I was as I was writing that. There's other books, you know. I I really think uh, some of Alistair McGrath's books are really helpful. Sometimes he doesn't get the same attention in um, maybe in, in, in Baptist circles for whatever reason or in the United States, but mere apologetics or narrative apologetics or some entry-level books that Alistair's written that are, that are really good. Uh, Alistair McGrath's Oxford theologian, scientist, historian, a pretty amazing scholar and author, but also uh, he has been affected in deep ways from by C.S. Lewis. He wrote important biography on Lewis. So he's really kind of imbibing Lewis in many ways in his approach. And so if you've read Lewis, you like Lewis, Lewis doesn't give us a whole lot as far as, okay, here's my methodology. But in some ways, I think McGrath is giving that 
in some of his books. So I would, I direct you towards some of his stuff, especially like if you've been impacted by C.S. Lewis, which, which so many of us have been. Yeah, we'll make sure to link to all of those resources in the show notes, as well as this new work um, from Brazos, The Augustine Way. Uh, Josh, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us here today on the Digital Public Square. I appreciate your ministry and your work and really excited for this new season there at Beeson Divinity School. Thanks. Good to be with you. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you connect with Dr. Shatraw and learn more about his new book, The Augustine Way, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Research Institute at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.